Our text for this Lord's Day comes from Matthew chapter 22 as we continue our study through Matthew's gospel. Here, Matthew 22. Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready, come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, please sow in our hearts your word in such a way that it bears fruit. Deliver us from all of the wiles and devices of the devil who might uh, distract us or steal away that seed before it takes root. So deliver us from every distraction and every anxious thought and every worldly thought and uh, guide us into your truth by your spirit. Give me articulate speech. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. There was a small controversy a couple of months ago in the U.S. Senate when Democratic Majority Leader Chuck Schumer quietly relaxed the Senate's dress code. This change was made to accommodate a certain senator from Pennsylvania whose personal sense of style is strikingly similar to the 40-year-old guy rifling through Pokemon cards at the GameStop. He shows up at official events in a hoodie and gym shorts and athletic shoes. The Senate dress code was relaxed. A few weeks later though, there was a unanimous vote to mandate a coat and a tie and pants for men on the Senate floor. It's hilarious that this is the area that they could agree on. This is the area where they could all find common ground. And it's so curious that in a world where it's okay for ugly men to dress like women, and read books to children for some reason. And women can wear combat gear. In this world, someone somewhere still thinks clothing matters. But should it? Should it really matter what this guy wears on the Senate floor? Should it matter? Well, the conservative and the traditional answer to that question is yes, it does matter. It matters a lot. In public, at work, in formal situations, and especially when you are representing other people, your dress is not for your own comfort, but for the comfort of others. Our dress is a statement about how much we respect other people around us. If I come to your fancy Christmas party looking like I just rolled out of bed, I'm making a very selfish statement about how little I care for your hospitality, how little I care about you. I don't care enough about your invitation and enough about you to make any effort to put myself together. If I show up at your wedding in a untucked, 
a polo shirt and sweatpants, what I'm communicating very clearly is, I don't care about you, I don't love you. Now, some of you may think, no, it doesn't. That doesn't mean that. Well, you're wrong. It does mean that. <laughs> it absolutely means that. Because we always ask the question, what makes me comfortable? And that guides all of these decisions. That guides everything. What makes me comfortable? But the question we've forgotten to ask is, what is appropriate? Propriety is key. For example, your, your, how you dress at work is determined by your calling. What is appropriate? An Alaskan, an Alaskan fisherman is not going to shop at Brooks Brothers for his, work, for his work clothes. He's not going to do that. But if that same Alaskan fisherman shows up at a wedding or at a funeral, he's not going to wear what he wears on the boat, or he, or he shouldn't. So the question is, what is appropriate? What is fitting? What is good? If you look at pictures from just a couple of generations ago, it doesn't matter if you see people at a baseball game or a picnic or at an airport. The men are unmistakably dressed like adult men. The women are clearly and unmistakably dressed like adult women. That's not so today. Today we have this generic unisex uniform of jeans and t-shirts and athletic shoes, which is assumed to be appropriate for just about any occasion. And it's, it's no accident that the decline in standards of dress has been accompanied by declines in other areas of decency and decorum as well. We live in the midst of a steep decline of respect and manners and modesty and decency, and all these go together. Sloppy dress and sloppy behavior go hand in hand. Now we can make a hundred qualifications, and I know your mind is rifling through all the qualifications right now. If, if I would prefer a principled senator in, in overalls over a snake in a suit, obviously. We have plenty of snakes who know how to dress well. Uh, but you see, the sharp-dressed wicked man is a hypocrite. His uniform does not match his character. And the truly principled man eventually will learn how to dress in a way that fits his office. He, he will learn that you can dress in a way that people will take you seriously, and you can also dress in a way when nobody's gonna take you seriously. So does it ever matter how you dress? Should it matter? Well, it matters to the king in the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew uh, 22. A story where we find a wedding guest who took such little care for his appearance that the king has him bound hand and foot and cast out of the banquet into outer darkness. Such, such was the offense that he was kicked out of the party and not let back in. And that story is not gonna make sense to you if you think clothes don't matter. You're not gonna get it unless you understand what is being said and what is being done by a person's appearance. And this clothing controversy comes at the climax of a story that has a, a wedding banquet, there, there is a political rebellion, there's murder, there's a burning city, and in the midst of this, the point is the climax of the story is this, this controversy over what a man is wearing. So I wanna spend all of our time today on just this one parable. We'll save the rest of the chapter for next time. Uh, we're just gonna focus on this parable. Where are we in the gospel? Where are we in the story of Jesus's life? We are in the week of the crucifixion. The Lord Jesus has entered the city of Jerusalem triumphantly. People have waved the palm branches. They've spread their cloaks out on the road. Jesus has gone into the city. He went directly into the temple. He turned over the tables. He interrupted the worship of the temple. 
And then he went back out. He went back to, he didn't stay in the city. He went to stay with friends in Bethany. And now he's come back into the city. He sat down in the temple uh, on a following day, and he teaches the, the, the people in the temple. The chief priests and the elders show up and say, what do you think you're doing? Who do you think you are? And this is what we read last week. Jesus answered them with parables. He told a couple of parables. He told a parable about two sons whose father commanded them to go out to the vineyard to work. Both sons dishonored and disobeyed their father. And that story was aimed at the double disobedience of the chief priests who are confronting Jesus. And then Jesus told this other parable about this beautiful, well-supplied vineyard that was being worked by wicked tenants. The landlord sent his servants to collect the rent from the tenants, but the tenants beat and killed and stoned the servants of the Lord. So he sent more servants and the wicked tenants treated them the same way. And then the Lord sent his own son and they took the son out of the vineyard and killed him. And so Jesus asked the chief priest, he said, what would you do if you're in the landlord's spot? What would you do? And they said, we would destroy those wicked men miserably and lease the vineyard to other vine dressers who will be faithful to render the fruit that is due. And that parable clearly is the story of Israel. In Isaiah, God calls Israel his vineyard, his precious vineyard, and he sends his prophets continually, just as the Lord sent his servants. And Israel despised and they ignored and they killed and abused the prophets. Now God is sending his son. He's in the process of sending his son and they are in the process of even being more cruel to him. So God will do just what they said. He will destroy those wicked tenants and he will grant, he will give the vineyard to a nation who will bring forth its fruits. That nation, that people is the church. Now, those were two parables that he told back to back, and those parables increase in intensity. Now, this third parable delivered to the same audience on the same day, this parable goes off the rails. Everything in this parable seems so extreme and over the top. Everything in this parable gets turned way up, and nothing is quite what we would expect. We, and I'm thinking just as Americans, as evangelicals, we would expect Jesus to tell a story about a king who throws a great wedding feast and an invitation goes out in the spirit of, hey, you know, if you want to come to the party, come. If you want to pop by, just come up, pop on by. If it's okay, if you, would, if you don't want to come, that you're lost, no big deal. And the invitation goes out and some people say, yeah, okay, that sounds good. I'll go. I might, I might come by. I might swing by. I might see you. And other people say, no, I'm good, bro. It's good. It's fine. I'm not going to come by. And that's okay, that's cool, it's cool. And nobody's offended by the invitation and the king's not offended if you don't take his invitation. And then the king welcomes everybody who wants to be there. Come just as you are, there's no dress code. Make yourself at home. Hey, put your feet up on the table. Chew with your mouth open. It doesn't matter what you do. I don't care as long as you're here. Now, now we might assume, in our assumptions, we would say, well, a good king is entirely inclusive. He doesn't, he doesn't leave anybody out, and he doesn't have any expectations. A good king would never be exclusive. And there would certainly be no weeping and gnashing of teeth in that story. There would be no burning cities in, in that kind of uh, story. That, we, that was the kind of story that we would expect to hear because we are used to people telling us what we want to hear. We're used to politicians telling us what we want to hear. We're used to Bible teachers telling us what we want to hear. And so we'd expect Jesus would just tell us what we want to hear. 
but that's not the story we get. Instead, everything in this parable is the opposite of what I just said. We get a parable that teaches that actions have real consequences. And even though there is a depth and a mercy to God's grace, even though there is no limit to his forgiveness, that doesn't mean that with forgiveness, everything gets reset to zero in this life. No, sin leaves a mark. Sin puts you outside the company of the happy, blessed people who are feasting and rejoicing. And you can sin in ways that changes everything forever for you. So, so this is a dark parable. This is a heavy parable. And it tells us where we are in Jesus's ministry and in redemptive history. He is, you can count the number of hours Jesus is away from his betrayal and crucifixion. I'm talking, we're just a couple of days away from his passion. And so everything is pressing in and Israel's moment of truth is imminent. The question, are they going to submit and join the marriage supper of the Lamb? And are they gonna sit down with Jesus in his kingdom and do it on Messiah's terms, clothed in his righteousness, or are they going to continue to rebel and ignore the invitation and try to get in as wedding crashers clothed in their own filthy rags? Well, let's walk through this parable of piece by piece. So chapter 22, verse one. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. Why is this invitation such a big deal? And why is everyone expected to RSVP? Yes, I wanna be there, I wanna come, I am coming. Well, the marriage of a prince, this is not a sentimental, romantic occasion. This is not a family event. The marriage of a prince concerns the entire realm. The prince is going to rule the kingdom one day. So this is a political event. The king would invite all of his allies and all of his friends, everyone who's loyal to him and loyal to the prince. He wants them all there. So anybody in that guest list would be honored to receive the invitation and they would come. A royal wedding in the ancient world it would, it would last at least seven days. This is a week, a full week of all the best food you can eat, of all the best wine you can drink of all the best, the, the music and the, and the dancing and everything, it's gonna be one big, long, seven-day festivity. You've got a place to stay. The king has many rooms. He's got lots of places to put you up. You can stay there and you can rest and rejoice and, and, and have fun the entire week. This is a week-long party. So when this invitation goes out, you do not have anything more important than this on your calendar. Whatever you got, whatever you got scheduled, you clear it, you cancel it, you move it. He sends out his servants to personally deliver this invitation to all of these people. But strangely, they come back with rejections. Now, in a parable full of amazing, incredible, unbelievable things, this is the first thing, first unbelievable thing. Who would say no to this? Why would you say no to this? A rejection of this kind of invitation can only be a high-handed statement of rebellion. What this says to the king is, I don't care about you, I don't support you, I don't support your son, I don't support the kingdom, I don't like anything you're doing, so I'm not coming, I'm not coming. So it's not just rude, it's seditious. Now the king 
is gracious, though, initially. The king thinks, well, there must be some mistake. I mean, I, I, I thought it communicated clearly. I, I must not have been clear enough. And, and maybe they didn't realize what we've got going on here. Maybe they, maybe they think I'm going to skimp on the food or something. So he gives them the benefit of the doubt. Notice the parallels to the previous parable, how that uh, master of the vineyard kept sending his servants. Now, now look at this and, and, and see this again, uh, where, where this happens in this parable. Verse four, again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, the fatted calf are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. That's not a please, <laughs> that's, a, that's a summons. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm and another to his business. The servants go back out a second time, so, and they go to the guests who've already been invited. This is a second invitation. And they say, okay, look, everything's fixed. All the food's ready. The, 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 the cow is in the smoker. We got everything ready to go. All the decorations are up. All the flowers are there. So come to the wedding. And they not only refused the second invitation, but they made fun of it. And they taunted and they ridiculed the king's servants. And one of the men who receives the invitation just goes back to his farm. And another man goes back to his store, to his business, to his emporium. And they say, no, no, we ain't going. We ain't going to the party of a lifetime. We aren't going to be guests of the king and his prince. We aren't going to be partying with the most influential people in the realm. No, thank you. I need to get back to my cows. I need to get back to my store. Uh, they forfeit all the glory and all the joy and all the beauty. And these are the indifferent ones. Not everybody's so indifferent. Not everybody responds the same way. Some people re respond violently. Verse six, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully and killed them. This is another incredible thing. How, why would you be so angry at an invitation to a party that you want to kill the messenger. What, what is going on? Why would you, why would you do that? Why, what would provoke you to do that? And tracking with the symbolic meaning of the story because you know what's going on. You're listening to this parable and you know what's happening. Why would anyone be so offended over an invitation from God to sit down with his son in his kingdom and rejoice with him? Why would they be so offended over that invitation that they would kill him? Why would they do that? You see, some are just indifferent to Jesus and uh, some, the idolaters who are threatened by Jesus want to, want to kill him. They understand that what they're doing and what they're teaching is incompatible with the claims of the gospel. And so they're provoked to violence. Martyrdom happens when the gospel comes into conflict with false religion. Even if it's the false religion of the state, martyrdom is produced by clash of religions. And so um, they, they kill this, these king's servants because they don't want to change their life. They don't want to do anything different. They don't want to submit to the, the king in any way. So in the parable, killing the king's servants is nothing less than an act of war. That's, you, you don't kill the king's servants, and they do. So, so you understand why the king responds to the way, the way that he does. Uh, verse 7, but when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. This is the third unbelievable thing that happens in this parable. This doesn't make sense 
if this is just a family event. There wouldn't be all of this drama and murder and bloodshed and warfare if this is just a family gathering. You know, this doesn't happen if your cousin can't make it to your daughter's wedding, right? I mean, you don't like, I'm gonna burn your house down. That's not gonna happen. And not at all. But, but if you're king and they kill your servants, that's an act of war. That's an act of rebellion and you respond. So the king burns down their city. Now, after this retribution, the king, he's still got a son to marry off. They've got all this, this wine and all this cheese and beef and cake. We're, we're still gonna have a party, so let's invite the common folk. Let's get anybody we can get. Verse eight, he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who are invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways and as many as you can find, invite to the wedding. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. So the servants go out to every house and knock on every door. They get travelers from off the road. Hey, what you doing tonight? Hey, come on, let's go, let's go to the party. Everybody you can find, both bad and good. This is an invitation without qualifications. They filled the wedding hall with guests. So everyone can come, fools, wise men, men of high standing, men of low birth, they go out and they pull everybody in. This is similar to other kingdom parables where the kingdom of heaven is like a tree where all the birds of the air come nest in its branches. It's like the parable of the dragnet where uh, the, the kingdom of heaven is like a net and it brings in all kinds of fish, good and bad. The kingdom of heaven is like a field where tares are planted right next to the wheat. There's similarities here. So the sweep of the invitation is so broad that it brings in all these guests. Now here's the catch. When you get into the banquet hall, when you come near to the palace, uh, you, you can't stay how you are. You can't remain like you are. You have, to, uh, you, you have to honor the king. You have to act with a certain decorum that honors the event that you are attending. And not everybody does that. Verse 11, but when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. Evidently, when all these commoners got the invitation, they heard that they're invited, hey, you know, we're, we'll clear our calendar. They rush to put on their absolute best and they dress for the occasion to the best of their ability. This last minute invitation was not an excuse to not be presentable at the party. The fact that you're not a lord, you're not a lady, you're not a duke, you're not a duchess, that's not an excuse to wear sweatpants to the reception. That's not at all an excuse. When the king goes into the hall to greet the guests, there is a man there who is so poorly dressed that he sticks out. He's wearing a hoodie and gym shorts and Crocs at the wedding of the king, uh, the prince. And the king asks him, friend, he calls him friend. He said, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He gives him a chance to answer. He doesn't just assume anything. He says, how'd you get in here? And the man in response doesn't say, because I'm poor and I can't afford it. Now, if he said that, the king, oh, brother, come on. Well, we're gonna fix you up. We're gonna get this sorted out. He doesn't say, oh, this is the, I tried my best. 
This is the best thing I had. Hey, come on, I get it, I get it. Come on, let's, let's work, I got something for you. He doesn't say, you know what, I, I mean, it's just last minute, my best robe is at the cleaners, I thought my wife was gonna pick it up and she didn't, and I had to get over here and, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't say anything. He doesn't have a reason at all, a good or bad reason. He is speechless. What does that mean? It means he's surprised by the question. He didn't really put any thought into his presentation or his preparedness for the feast. Do you see why this is so offensive? Do you understand why this is such a big deal? Because his attitude is, I'm just gonna be myself and they're just gonna take me as I am. I'm not gonna do anything different or act any different way than what I normally do. I'm gonna go to the party just like I am. Do you see how arrogant this is? Do you see how extraordinarily inconsiderate this is, this attitude of take me as I am or not at all. His lack of personal preparation is as much an act of defiance and indifference as those who refuse the invitation, those who mock the servants, those who killed the servants. This is another act of rebellion. His lack of decorum is a direct insult to the king and to the prince. And so the king treats him accordingly. He tells the servants, tie him up, bind him hand and foot, and get him out of here. Cast him out of the party, out of the light, into the darkness, out of the feasting and the laughing and the rejoicing, into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, out there with everybody who didn't want to come to my party, everybody who mocked my servants, everybody who are now hopeless because I burned down their city because they killed my servants where they're crying about it. I want him out there and I want him tied up too because I don't want him getting back in here. I don't try to get back in here, get rid of him because I don't want him coming back and ruining the party for everybody else. And Jesus ends this whole parable with this statement. He says, many are called, but few are chosen. That's a summary of the whole parable. In fact, this is a summary of the whole history of Israel to this point. Now, we, we like to think that's a good, that's a good Calvinist proof text, but I, I really don't think, Jesus is not saying that out of the whole world of humanity, only a tiny handful are going to be elect, chosen by God, and the rest are going to hell. That's not what Jesus is saying by saying many are called, a few are chosen. Uh, remember, this is uh, All Saints Sunday, where we rejoice in what John says in Revelation 7, 9, where he says that a great multitude is around the throne of the Lamb, a multitude that no one can number of every nation and people, all standing before the throne. The, the saints are an innumerable host. I suspect that in 10 thousand years, when we look back on the course of human history, that the, the, the number of unbelievers, the number of rebels against the Lord Jesus, are, it's going to be such a tiny fraction compared to the mass of humanity that are in fellowship with the Lord Jesus, in union with Christ, that, that the number of, of faithless is just a, such a small fraction, it's like a rounding error compared to the great number of of the elect. That's what, that's what we can, can gather from passages like Revelation 7. The saints are an innumerable host. So Jesus is not saying out of the whole world, a lot of people are called, but you know, it was about 15 or so actually take the invitation. No, um, we always put everything Jesus says, we have to put it in the context. Who's he talking to? What is happening in history? What's going on? 
What is, what is going on? And, and so what, what's happening, this generation that he's talking to, this generation is being called to join Jesus in his kingdom. Very few of them are going to respond. Very few of them are going to be delivered through the disaster that is coming. They are called, uh, Israel received the adoption, they received the glory, the covenants, the law, the presence of God at the temple, the service of God to them at the temple. They received the promises. Out of them came the Messiah, but they would not submit to the righteousness of God. They come clothed in their own righteousness. They come in their own fig leaves and filthy rags and their traditions and laws and will not put on the righteousness of Christ. They will not submit to put on the robe that he's offering them. See, they were called, but they are not all chosen to join the master in the new world. They were not delivered from the old world to the new world because they would not trust That's just like the generation in the wilderness. Many were called out of Egypt. Very few were chosen to go into the promised land. And the same thing is happening here in this generation that Jesus is speaking to. So as we process this uh, lesson here and we process what Jesus is teaching in this parable, I might be inclined to think that this uh, reference to a burning city that must be the judgment which is to come, that must be the destruction which is about to happen in that generation, but it may be a reference to the destruction which has already come. Remember, the city and the temple have already been burned to the ground once several hundred years before. Back in the days of Jeremiah, remember King Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city and destroyed everything, and it was all rebuilt uh, later in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. So, So here's what this parable says. Yahweh has for centuries sent his servants to the leaders of his people to invite them to come, sit down, and rejoice and rest in him. Receive him as their king. Join him in the happy celebration of his son's marriage to his bride people. But the rulers, the kings and the priests, have been grossly rebellious. They have shunned his invitations. They have mocked the prophets. They have killed the prophets. And, and so, in response, the Lord burned their city. Uh, Babylon destroyed Jerusalem in five, uh, 587 BC. Then, the Lord sends his servants back out. And he says, now, I want you to bring in anybody who will come. All the tax collectors, and all the harlots, and all the publicans, and all the fishermen, and all the outsiders, from the greatest to the least. That's what's been happening in the gospel. That part of the story is what the gospel is about. But this wide invitation does not mean that the king has dropped all of his standards. The warning is clear, you're invited, but you must be properly attired. You must be properly dressed. So what does it mean to be properly dressed? This isn't just about what's in your closet. Don't don't misunderstand me, don't mishear me. It's not just about what you're wearing. It's not less than what you're wearing, but it's, it's not only that. Throughout the Bible, there are several references to righteousness as a garment. And anytime we come across this theme, it's a reminder of how Adam and Eve tried to cover their own sin and shame in fig leaves and failed at it. And and how it was necessary for God to make tunics for them out of the sacrificial animals, to cover them in those priestly vestments uh, right after the fall. And so in the same way, in the same way for us, it is impossible for us to clothe ourselves, to cover our own sin and shame. God must cover us with his righteousness. And Job talks about this. Job says, 
I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Isaiah talks about it as well. Isaiah 61, he says, I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh. My soul shall be joyful in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Now, Jesus' audience knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew what he was, what he was saying. The chief priests had to have understood the reference to this, to this garment. If you're not covered by Yahweh's righteousness, you are still in your sins. And that's what Jesus is saying. Paul draws on this same theme in Ephesians chapter four. Paul says, put off, that is take off like a garment, take off the old man which grows uh, corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. In Galatians three, Paul says also, many of, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so, and so many read this wedding garment in this parable as baptism. Well, it's, uh, it, it's certainly a part of it is, is baptism. Baptism is a garment that you, that you put on in Galatians uh, 3. And of course, in Ephesians 6, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. In short, the Lord requires of us, if we are going to be part of this big, happy, festive company of all the saints, of all the ages, if you want to be part of this, then you must wear Christ and his righteousness as your uniform. Jesus is the most significant expression of who we are. He, Jesus, the Lord Jesus is our identity. When people look at us, we should want them to see Jesus just as clearly and undeniably as they see our shirt. You know, people wear t-shirts printed with all kinds of jokes and phrases and political slogans and all kinds of, of, of information to make a statement. And those, those communicate something before you even open your mouth. They communicate something about you. And so even in a, a more profound way, because of our union with Christ, we are to be, as Peter says, 1 Peter 5, 5, we are to be clothed with humility. That is our garment. That is our, that is our uniform. Uh, we're to be clothed with love and joy, and peace, and long-suffering, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. That is our attire. That is our wardrobe, enclosed in, in, in such a clear and profound way that people see that before they see the t-shirt. You know, I don't remember what that guy's shirt said, but wow, what a, what a humble, strong, and kind, and peaceful man. What a, what a joyful, gentle woman. And Peter, Peter addresses women in, in his epistle, and he warns about focusing on the outward adornment alone, and he wrote about the adornment of the heart, that incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. That never goes out of fashion. That is always appropriate for every, every occasion, that, that, that gentle and quiet spirit. In Revelation 19.8, the bride of Christ is arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. The robe of the church, the adornment of the church is your pursuit of holiness, your separation from the contamination of the world. Your adornment, uh, you, you adorn the church with your pursuit of holiness and your righteousness, your faithful obedience to God dresses the church in glory. Her glory is your submission to Jesus. 
That's what uh, 19.8 in Revelation says. All of these passages speak about clothing symbolically, that clothing is righteousness, but all of this is not irrelevant to that, that discussion of literal clothing that I brought up at the, at the beginning. Uh, there is a significant overlap in our attitudes about how we dress and our assumptions in general about what God requires of us in all of life. We, as Americans, we are just very casual people. And that casualness, that aloofness, that lack of decorum, that lack of propriety colors all of our relationships to each other and to God. And so we think, we just assume it doesn't matter how we present ourselves. It doesn't matter how we present ourselves in clothing, but not in speech and not in behavior and not in the positions we take and not in the identities we associate with. We think it doesn't affect anybody else. It's all about me. I can do what I want. I'm an individual. I'm not attached to anybody else. I'm not connected to anybody else. I'm all, I'm all my own. I live for myself. I belong to myself. And so we avoid, we don't want to be unmistakably, explicitly robed in Christ's righteousness in a way that anybody could see it, not in a way that anybody could tell. We don't want to stick out. If, 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 we, want, if we want to be robed in something, we want to be robed in, in camo. You know, We want, we want uh, uh, something that allows us to be secret Christians, undercover Christians. I know, ninja Christians. Can we, can we get a ninja Christian uniform? where you can't see us, we're hiding. We're there, but we're hiding. Nobody can see us. Or, or we prefer the uniform of the other team. We play dress up as pagans, taking not only, not only clothing, but the behavior and the mannerisms and the language and the talking points and the way of conducting ourselves as idolaters. We don't want the wedding garment of Christ's righteousness. We reject that. That's weird. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward. We don't want that. We want the hoodie and the Crocs of sloppy idolatry. That's what we want to be dressed in. Does it matter what you wear? Does it matter what you're robed with? The casual American answer to that question is no, no. What you wear has nothing to do with what's in your heart. That's, our, that's the answer. But the king in the parable has a very different answer. A very different answer. He would not agree with us on that. What you wear is indeed an outward expression of what is in your heart. That king put that man out of the banquet because of his selfishness, which was evident in his appearance. And, and his selfishness was an offense to the whole party and everybody there. Everyone else had taken the time and made the effort to be covered in glory. Everyone else had asked themselves the question, not what makes me comfortable, but what is appropriate for a banquet like this? And so the king has to come to this man. He has to make everything weird and awkward for a minute while he addresses this man and says, who do you think you are? To come in here and act like you can do whatever makes you happy. Your sloppiness is an offense to me and to my son and his bride and to everyone in here. Now, now we may be offended by this king, again, because we know in this parable, the banquet is the kingdom of God, and we want to believe that everybody's just fine, just like they are, just as they come in. God loves us just as we are, and he doesn't want us to change a thing. Just be who you want to be. And that's very attractive to us. We like saying that because there are, are sins that we know we need to repent of, and there are habits we need to change, and there's bitterness we need to let go of. Just not yet. It's not yet. I just need to hold on to this. There's, there's habits and unbiblical ways of thinking and things I need to repent of. 
I just am not ready to give up yet. So, so if I tell everybody else, God wants you just as you are, that kind of means he gets me just as I am as well. But you see, you understand, when the lame came to Jesus, he wasn't content to leave them lame. When the blind and the demon-possessed came to Jesus, he didn't just say, well, you're just fine just as you are. You're all right. No, he healed them and he forgave their sins. And when the harlots and the tax collectors who'd been extorting money from poor people came to Jesus, he didn't just casually hang. You hear this all the time. Jesus just hung out with, with harlots. He just hung out with tax collectors. You know, they're just hanging out, playing video games, and you know, whatever, uh, watching TikToks together, just hanging out. No, Jesus didn't do that just, just so they would be super comfortable being who they were, doing what they were doing. He met them where they were, he forgave them where they were, but because of his love, he refused to leave them there. He refused to leave them where they were. He loved them so much that they had to change. He loved them so much that they had to be transformed. It would not be loving for them to be stranded in their darkness and their hopelessness. Love wants the best. Love hates what sin does to you. Love hates what you and your sin are doing to other people. And so uh, love directs you to take off the old life of sin and to put on Christ. And so child of God, everybody in the sound of my voice, this is the only way to have life. This is the only way to be included in this great feast that we've sung about today. This is the way. Surrender to the Lord Jesus with Everything, everything gets surrendered to him. Say, I am done trying to cover for myself. I am done with the fig leaves and the, and the attempts to cover my shame and my sin. I am tired of the excuses and the justifications and the workarounds and the things I tell myself to make myself better, uh, feel better about the things I know I need to repent of and change. I'm, I'm sick of the ways that I'm trying to cover and hide my sins. I am exhausted. I'm, I'm done. I'm at the end. I need to be clothed with Christ. So confess your sins and trust in him and join that great multitude, which no one can number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed with white robes. Their white robes are the righteousness of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to all of us. We pray that indeed you would give us strength by your spirit, that we would take off the old man and that we would put on the righteousness of your son, that we would receive this. Give us the ability by your spirit uh, to do this and to not be ashamed, but to love the savior who loves us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.